Open your cerebral cortex and shift your lobes into upper beta phase because you are going to have Bitcoin knowledge transmitted directly into your vestibulocochlear. Your host at Bitcoin Knowledge is Trace Mayer, an early Bitcoin advocate since it cost a quarter, but this is not intended to be investment advice. A doctor of jurisprudence, but this is definitely not legal advice. And an investor in core cryptocurrency infrastructure, including Armory, BitPay, Kraken, and Nitagio, but this is not a recommendation of those services. Here, you get fed via direct mind download with pure and free Bitcoin knowledge. Uh, there's no room for ego in this business. And, you know, when it comes to making money, like, leave your ego, leave your politics, don't don't mix them with your portfolio. Like, your portfolio is about making money. Hello, everyone, and welcome into Crush the Street. We're going to talk about how to make some money today. And to talk with me about this today is none other than the man, Trace Mayer. Now, he was among and probably, probably the first blogger to publicly recommend blockchain technology, Bitcoin. And I mean, this is a man who had some serious conviction about where Bitcoin technology and where Bitcoin would be today. I'm looking at Bitcoin right now at $2,300. And I get criticized for late news. I put my interviews out and Bitcoin's 1500 and then uh, when it's up, it's it's 1800 and everyone's calling it old news, and it's just happening in a matter of what seems like hours, but uh, it's moving fast, and we need to talk about this today. Uh, Trace Mayer, a favorite at CrushTheStreet.com, thanks for coming on the line with me today. Oh, so glad to be here. I remember when uh, teaching you guys about Bitcoin for the first time. <laughs> hey, man. And I wish I put a lot more money into it at a much earlier stage than I did now. I'm I'm regretting that bigly well, here. Well, don't you know, don't don't we all? I mean, I, actually, I, I do remember quite a bit because uh, I mean, you mentioned like the first public blogger. I, I mean, I got a YouTube video published January 11th, 2011, you know, talking about recommending Bitcoin. And that's about the time that Roger Ver bought his first Bitcoin, let alone started talking about it. And then let's see, I helped Andreas Antonopoulos start publicly talking about Bitcoin. We were early buds in the space. I sent Jeff Berwick his first Bitcoins, uh, Michael Maloney. Yeah. So, I mean, do you remember that time when we were uh, in Palm Springs and I think Bitcoin was like $13 and you had all the video equipment. We had just done an interview uh, where I called the shot again and it ran to like $266, like two or two months later or whatever. But we had all the video equipment and Peter Schiff was there and we were like, hey, let's do an interview about Bitcoin. And Peter was like, no, I don't want you to make me look stupid. <laughs> and it's just like... Oh, man, like this business, there's no room for ego. But nonetheless, tons of entertainment value. It's been a, a lot of fun. Trace, you know, I kind of on that topic right there, I can't believe how many gold bugs are out there still trashing Bitcoin. In, I mean, I'm going to call it denial. I'm sure they don't feel that way. They, they feel like it's worthless. This is a fad. This is something that is going to go away. It doesn't have 
real intrinsic value. And I was skeptical. Even back then when, when we were talking about it, I thought there was a potential, but I, I didn't know. I didn't, it didn't have that history of money that, you know, gold had obviously even, even the fiat dollar. This was just something that was brand new. But of course, after some due diligence, and watching it prove itself year after year as transaction volume came in and it just continued to grow and mass adoption took place. I had to eventually acknowledge the trend and we've been covering Bitcoin here and topics, interviewing tons of experts on the channel for now a, a few years. And hey, I mean, we've become a, a real resource here at Crush the Street and I'm very happy with what we're seeing happening in Bitcoin as I'm invested in it and I'm up pretty big. But, you know, do you have anything to say to these people who are just gold and silver and no more? And, and how long are they going to be until they they come around to this? Yeah, I mean, I guess I just mentioned it there. Like, uh, there's no room for ego in this business. And... You know, when it comes to making money, like leave your ego, leave your politics, don't don't mix them with your portfolio. Like your portfolio is about making money. And, you know, so like leave all that stuff out. And I think what we're seeing with Bitcoin and, and it's such a fascinating sociological experiment is we're seeing massive amounts of cognitive dissonance. And Bitcoin is just dragging it out and making people face that cognitive dissonance face to face. We're we're finding that cognitive dissonance in terms of uh, how strong people think the state really is. Because hey, is Bitcoin censorship resistant or not? You know, I mean, you have a lot of people who think they're libertarians. Uh, you know, who rail against the state, like when they're out publicly talking and whatnot. But like when it comes to like betting money or whatever, uh, they just they're not betting it on uh, on Bitcoin. And I think it's a kind of a form of cognitive dissonance. A good example was Rick Rule. You know, I, I sat down in his office in Carlsbad. We had a chat about Bitcoin. We were there. Uh, you were there. Uh, I mean, like, OK, so so Rick Rule, part of the Sprott group, right? Sprott was a big investor in gold money. I was an investor in gold money. I brought Bitcoin to a couple members of the gold money board when it was a quarter. A freaking quarter. Wow. Like, like, I mean, gold money could have, could have been this exchange between physical gold and Bitcoin, right? Like that was kind of my vision with, uh, bringing, you know, letting them know about it, all this stuff. Now they accept Bitcoin to, to fund your account. But hey, like it's eight years late, right? Like, like, preparation and opportunity that's where luck comes in right <laughs> i mean luck is not an accident uh the, i don't really think there's anything such as luck uh to be honest uh there's always some force at work and so like you know this is a form of cognitive dissonance in fact one of those one of those members of the gold money board he made a very uh a very good presentation at a board meeting about accepting and rolling out Bitcoin. This was, I think, even later, like 2013. Uh, I mean, a great, like a great case, great argument for it. He's one of the major investors in gold money was, you know, uh, he still hasn't bought any Bitcoin as far as I know, because he just hasn't put in the work and the effort to figure out how to have a wallet. Wow. <laughs> so, I mean, 
like the degree of cognitive dissonance that people suffer from and are and are suffering from. Uh, and I think the root cause of that is a lack of humility. It's it's this love of their own self and their own intellect, thinking that they're so important. Um, you you got to leave that at the door, man. Mm-hmm. You got to you can't mix that with your portfolio. It is toxic. Yeah. And, you know, so that's that's one of the things I, you know, I really try to do is I try to take myself out of this. I try to I try to see things as they really are. And then I also try to have in my motivation, like, I just want to help people. Like, I want to help people get the facts, understand what's going on so that they can take their own actions with stuff. And, you know, that's kind of my motivation behind publicly talking about it at all, even or any of this stuff. And also because it's it's got this component of sound money, freedom of speech. These are all, you know, civil liberties, human freedom type of things. And that stuff like really kind of gets me, you know, that's that, that gets me kind of charged. And so, you know, that's really where my motivation is coming from. And so I like, you know, I think if you if you are bringing in ego, uh, there, there's just going to be cognitive dissonance and you're going to get ran over <laughs> by the Bitcoin train. <laughs> it's not going to be any fun. <laughs> I completely agree with you. And I love what you said about the sociological experiment. And I think that is so true. Everyone who was skeptical watching it on the sidelines. Now it goes up and everyone's been saying, oh, when it pulls back, I want to buy some. Because what happens is every time it moves higher, everyone sees the potential. So it's like, okay, I know it's gone to a thousand and when it was at 800 i said it was too expensive so when it goes back to 800 i'll buy and that's what people right. have been saying now for months so and then it moves to 1300 and that was the high very psychological that you know what we saw a few years ago so oh it must pull back so when it does it doesn't pull back to 1000 where everyone was thinking they would buy it just keeps moving up and this bitcoin train or digital currency train is just passing people by there's been people i've been talking to on the sidelines trying to get in now for months but they can never pull the trigger because it just keeps going higher as they wait for the correction and yeah. <laughs> any thoughts on this sociological experiment I I mean it's just uh, remember that interview we did uh, with your brother at uh, cousin uh, cousin the, everybody oh, says cousin that Daniel? well <laughs> yes. you kind of look you look similar you got the same last name right uh, <laughs> hey I look like some of my cousins I got like sixty five of them or something uh, <laughs> I got lots of them but uh, like I think it was December twenty thirteen so Bitcoin had been you know on its run up there at like twelve hundred or whatever. And, uh, I mean, I was the first person to throw out publicly, like, hey, this could be really big. It could be like $2 million to $5 million of Bitcoin. And then I think a week later, Rick Falkbeing, uh came out with a similar kind of price area. And we hadn't communicated with each other about it, just independently arrived at that. And so, I mean, yeah, we're going to have ups and downs. I was, you know, I talked about it when it was a quarter. It ran to $32. And then it crashed to $2. You know, and then it ran to two hundred and sixty six dollars and it crashed to like a hundred dollars or something. Then it ran to twelve hundred dollars and then it crashed to two hundred dollars. And now it's run to what are we at? Twenty two fifty or something like that. Um, 
it, it'll probably keep running. Eight months ago, I did an interview with Jeff Berwick. I think I also did an interview with you guys where I talked about, hey, we're in another bull run. It's going to go to, I would say, $3,000 conservatively. Well, look, here we are. You know, I freaking called the shot again, like fourth time in a row. Uh, and this time around, I mean, we, we have no idea like where this thing could go. Uh, Japan just passed legislation April 1st that makes it legal to use it over there. It's cleared up a lot of uncertainty. Now you've got Forex dealers in Japan, like letting people trade Bitcoin uh, on margin, basically. So you've got a yen Bitcoin carry trade. Uh, I mean, Bitcoins are trading for something like $2,700 on Bitflyer, the largest Japanese exchange. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's where could this go? We got no we got no idea where like where the top of this is because we have no idea how much fiat currency is out there and how much is going to get created. And yet there's trillions and trillions of dollars. There's $12 trillion just in U.S. bank accounts. You start moving just fractions of that into Bitcoin, and Bitcoin being equity-based monetary system is like a black hole to this fiat currency fractional reserve banking system. You know, it's going to destroy a lot of debt and, you know, not just bonds and not just not just debt like that, but also the unit of accounts themselves, Federal Reserve notes and these other central bank notes like this, this equity based uh, monetary system that's coming out where it's both the unit and the transmission mechanism where you're able to transfer value over an, a, a communications channel, an Internet protocol like this thing, this major cognitive dissonance that people are suffering from. And like, you know, it's going to be it is in the starting stages of the largest wealth transfer the world is probably ever going to see. And so, like, like, why not have some of it, right? I mean, Satoshi wrote about this back, you know, when it was super cheap. He was like, hey, it, it might actually become something. Like, you might want to buy a little bit just for that. Yeah. Which is yeah. what I think. The understatement, think of, the understatement of the year, right? <laughs> well, I mean, I mean. Back in 2008 thing. or whatever, he did that. Yeah, I mean, like, that's the thing. I, I'm not, I'm not, out, like, I, I haven't like, I don't yell at people, hey, you gotta buy Bitcoin or whatever. It's just like, you know, I quietly put out my videos <laughs> and quietly do my interviews and all this stuff. And, but, you know, six, seven years down the road, I point back and I'm like, hey, scoreboard, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Trace, what does a bubble feel like? And, is this sustainable? Because I, I think what makes this feel like a bubble now is that everyone's buying just for the profits and everyone's seeing the profits and it's people are just piling in. I have people texting me left and right going, hey, I should probably buy buy a, a few bitcoins or I should throw some money at Ethereum when before they were just like, I don't believe it. But because it's just continuously going crazy up higher and higher and higher, it's attracting a lot of speculative money. And that's what makes me feel like this is starting to turn into a bubble. But, you know, you might disagree with that. And I'm not saying it's a bubble because like like you said, I don't, who knows how high this can go and, and where the top would be. But there are some, certainly some free market forces at play here and it's going to go up and it's going to have corrections. So what what are your thoughts on the 
current environment with the way people are getting into Bitcoin now and, and a lot of these other digital currencies? Yeah, so I'll, I'll address some fundamentals of that um, later. Just, you know, in terms of bubble, hey, like maybe this has just all been a big bubble because, you know, if you look at 25 cents to, to 22.50, you're looking at a return in six years that is two to three times what Berkshire Hathaway has returned in 40 years. Mm. Right? right? Like Warren, Warren Buffett, best investor ever. Uh, yeah, like I, you know, mine is like two to three times his in one fifth the time, <laughs> right? Like, hey, is this a bubble? Um, we have a big correction, and like my my performance is still going to be like significantly better than Buffett's. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when we're when we're looking at, uh, you know, he's investing in IBM, which is losing money. I'm playing with blockchain stuff. We're, we're dealing with an innovation revolution. Uh, when we had the tech bubble uh, in the late 90s, yeah, you know, that was, that was not sustainable. But out of that, what did we get? We got Amazon, Google, Facebook, YouTube. Uh, you know, we got Fandango. We got all these things that have changed our lives. And so likewise, we're, gonna, we're going through a financial, technological uh, revolution right now. And, and that, that's why I'm just, you know, I would not short any of this stuff, even though I know that there's probably going to be a correction, you know, whether it's in altcoins or in Bitcoin or whatever, because I think this stuff gets overvalued. But the other part is, how do you figure out how to value this stuff? I mean, I've been in, <laughs> I've been in this like pretty much since the beginning, and I have a really hard time like trying to come up with a way to to fair market value, you, you know, to try and figure out what this stuff's actually worth. I one one thing one way that I really like to look at it is I I like looking at transaction fees, and the reason is because transaction fees represent an actual economic cost that users are incurring to use the blockchain, and so that at least helps. You know, at least people, I can see what people are paying, right? Like during the tech boom, we had page views and like Webvan was, or pets.com was raising billions of dollars like with page views. And it's like, well, no, page views don't matter. Sales don't even matter. What matters is how much net income you're making from your sales. And so looking at transaction fees that people pay to use the network, uh, that's one way that I like to, you know, try and get a fair market value of what stuff's worth. To, to make a comparison between blockchains, you've got Bitcoin, largest, most established. People are paying upwards of a million dollars a day in transaction fees. Okay, 300,000 transactions. Uh, start of the year, it was around $100,000 a day. Now it's up to like a million. It's really starting to put a pinch on some use cases, but hey, like there's demand to use Bitcoin, right? Because people are paying money to do it. Then you've got other blockchains uh, like Dash. I interviewed the, the lead developer of Dash, Evan, for my Bitcoin Knowledge podcast back in January of 2016. So it was $3 per Dash. Dash is like $150 right now, right? Yes. What are how how much are people spending in transaction fees to use the Dash network? I don't know. Well, they're well they're spending about 
well, last time I checked, you know, and stuff moves really fast, right? But a couple weeks ago, last time I checked, they were they were spending about four hundred dollars a day. Hmm. Okay, so you've got Dash, which has about a a one billion dollar market cap, and people are spending four hundred dollars a day in transaction fees, and then you have Bitcoin, which has a what a thirty seven million dollar market cap, and people are spending a million dollars a day. So, I mean, there's this big disparity between a million dollars a day of transaction fees and four hundred dollars a day. Like, there's just which one has more user base? Yeah. Which one has more people actually like able to buy and sell into the currency? Which one has more liquidity? Like all this stuff. When I did the comparison between the two, if if Bitcoin were to have the same market cap ratio to transaction fees as Dash does, then the price of Bitcoin would have to be like Mm $36,000 right now. So like, so I'm kind of looking at that and I'm like, well, maybe Bitcoin is undervalued or Dash is overvalued or it's a function of the two, right? Mm -hmm. Like maybe one's overvalued, one's undervalued. And so that's like a way to perhaps trade, like figure out how to trade one blockchain against the other or something. But I mean, what what else are we going to use in terms of like an objective, fundamental type of analysis? Because I mean, I, I like to take I like to take emotion out of it as much as I can and look at like objective factors. And I particularly like objective factors that are that are helping with price discovery, where you know people are having to actually pay money to use something because that shows how much people are valuing one thing over another and so that's one of the reasons I've kind of settled on transaction fees to try and figure out how to value user bases and network effects and and basically these blockchains but otherwise it's I just I just got to throw my hands up and truck I'm like hey your guess is as good as mine sure uh, for some reason my guess is uh right on a on a pretty regular basis so i'm not complaining about like how i'm guessing with stuff but uh uh, but i i think i think we're just in the you know another another key aspect is just being in the right general current at the right time you know if you're if you're in the gold industry when it's a 20-year bear market it's just gonna be it's just gonna be hard if you're in the gold market when it's a bull market for 20 years, hey, it's going to be easy, mm. right? So, like, if you're looking at these long-term cyclic cycles, um, you know, why not get yourself aligned in one that is just going to more or less be a, a bull market instead of a bear market? And guess what? Financial technology, uh, we've had so much financial regulation financial censorship, economic censorship, whether it's GATA with the gold price suppression scheme, whether it's all the regulation behind banks and, and, and other, you know, money transmission and stocks and, you know, bonds and like all this stuff, securities acts, you know, all this stuff is stifled innovation. Uh, you get these censorship resistant blockchains out there and it's just absolutely explosive in terms of the innovation that's going to come out of it and is coming out of it. And so, like, why not just get in that current and let the current take you where you want to go? Like, why fight it? You know, Mm -hmm. why swim against the current? Like, oh, I mean, align yourself with, like, the big trend picture. And, you know, if you feel like it, you know, start swimming a little bit faster downstream if you want to get there a little bit quicker. Uh, But, that, I mean, that's just how I, you know, want to look at stuff. I, I, I would prefer to make my life as 
you know, I would like to have as much of the general macro uh, backdrop in my favor as opposed to against me Mm. uh, when I'm when I'm playing with something. Trey, so as we've talked about in the past, lots of scaling drama within Bitcoin and the block size. Some people are out there, very notable people. I just uh, interviewed Amir Razik. And someone like him, he says, hey, you know, if it happens, it's not that big of a deal. It's the community coming together and saying, hey, this is what we need to do. And it's an improvement or uh, a development within Bitcoin. And the market will decide what needs to happen with the valuation of Bitcoin after that. So uh, what are your thoughts on it? Uh, I, I think there's definitely a lot of agitation for it because, you know, look at the transaction fees. I'm kind of, uh, I, I like to be very safe and conservative. I'm kind of, you know, I guess I would align with Greg Maxwell. Like, let's wait for the SegWit proposal to not activate and then maybe roll out BIP 149 or something. Uh, but, you know, people definitely need to be aware of this BIP 148 user activated soft fork that is going to happen in August. Uh, I actually put together, uh, with the help of some other people, a guide on how to prepare for it. You know, there's a lot of politics behind it and everything. Like, I'm not taking a stance on any of that, but I think people need to be aware of and prepare themselves for uh, what could happen. The guide, you can you can go read about it, uasfguide.com. So that's for user-activated soft fork, uh, guide.com. And because it's just... You know, people could lose money, especially if you're new in the industry or like coming into it. And so, you know, just go and get yourself educated on the topic because, I mean, 10% of Bitcoin nodes are now signaling for this user activated soft fork. So there could be some turbulence and it, and it goes into effect August 1st, you know, period. Like it's going to happen. So, you know, just get yourself educated on the issue, figure out how you're going to play it. If you're just if you're just holding Bitcoin, you know, you should be fine either way. Like just just hold. But make sure that you have the coins yourself and know which software you're going to run in order to validate whether a Bitcoin transaction has happened or not, because that's really what's very important about this. So people can just go to UASFguide.com and it's a good kind of introductory guide on what's going on with the problem and what people can do about it to make sure that they keep their money safe. Sure. Yeah, good thoughts right there. Uh, Interesting comments on the transaction volumes and what it might mean for Bitcoin valuation. And I, I agree with you. I think it's just one aspect of things to see how much people are willing to you know, spend to be part of the network. Although I don't know if it's the end all be all. And I was thinking about it, you know, People living in California, for instance, they say, oh, you pay to live in California. And because people prefer the weather in California, they like the ocean, they like the mountains, and the economy might arguably be better than certain areas. There's jobs in L.A., there's jobs in San Diego, there's jobs in San Francisco and the Silicon Valley. Well, people will willingly pay more in taxes for that benefit. But that's not necessarily a, a long-term indication of, of what's going to happen with California, for instance, because that's not a, a good thing. Taxes aren't a good thing. It doesn't encourage 
good behavior. And I'm wondering if transaction fees continue to go up, that will discourage use uh, of Bitcoin. Because like you said, it, it might discourage certain use cases for microtransactions. And I know certain people are saying, hey, Bitcoin is going to be the gold, you know, a wealth storage vehicle, not necessarily for microtransactions if it starts costing too much for just to use your Bitcoin. So yeah. I, I don't know, just maybe a, a comment on that uh, before we yeah. move on. I mean, it, it's, you know, I think the analogy is, oh, nobody's going to go to that restaurant. The The line to get in is too long, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And the, the way that the fee market works is like you get to skip the line. You just pay more money. And so it's it actually can become extremely valuable if you have a lot of high-paying transactions that want to get into the block but are actually being outbid, right? Because then you have this you have this really like deep line of customers and and it it acts like a floor to the price in my opinion. What it does do is it de it definitely hampers network effects because hey, certain use cases just aren't profitable anymore. You know, if we're if if you're gonna have to pay a hundred dollars for a transaction fee to use Bitcoin, uh, you know that's gonna price out a lot of cups of coffee, right? Right. Um, but at the end of the day, you like decentralized, censorship resistant uh, store of value. You know, that's uh, that that can be transferred over a communications channel. That's the first primordial network effect out of seven of them. And I would say that's the most important network effect. That's the network effect that we should guard above all others. You know, and, and then the second network effect, we, we guard that above, above all others, except for the first network effect. And then so on down the line uh, with the network effects. So we've got speculation, we've got merchants, consumers, miners, developers, financialization, and then world reserve settlement currency status. Those are our seven major network effects that I've kind of identified with it. Uh, but yes, speculation, hey, you know, if if all that Bitcoin ever is is just store of value, uh, you know, that could be huge. Look mm -hmm. at gold's market cap. But if we could also have Bitcoin replacing Visa and MasterCard and bank wires with things like Lightning Network and Liquid, hey, now, we've, now we're taking a second network effect with merchants and consumers, right? Second and third network effect. Uh, and all of this increases demand for the unit of Bitcoin because you got to use that to move over the network. So that makes the price higher, which makes miners more inclined to secure that network. And then, of course, developers want to work on whatever project the speculators have found most interesting. Um, so, you know, you, you attract the best of the best talent and money follows management. In this case, money's following developers, you know, the best developers, the legends who have built the Internet, built stuff like Tor and BitTorrent, you know, Bram Cohen and Adam Back, both working on the Bitcoin core implementation of Bitcoin. So, you know, this is it's it's going to be fun seeing how it plays out. We, we've gone from I think there were maybe 300 to 500,000 total Bitcoin community users or holders back in the 2013 bubble when it ran to like 1200 i think we're around three to seven million users now wow. if not more uh so just just in terms of the number of people who've got accounts set up where they can transfer money from their bank account to their exchange account and buy bitcoin it's just so much larger and you know that has a, a quadratic uh, scaling effect in terms of potential money that can come into this space, uh, right. which is hugely cool <laughs> because 
uh, the, I mean, there's just not, not that much float of Bitcoin that's actually saleable on the exchanges. Because so many people have either lost their Bitcoins or their Bitcoins are just in cold storage and they're not moving them. I mean, why move your Bitcoin? You know, you're going to pay capital gains tax. Like, I don't I don't sell my Bitcoins. Sure. Like, I don't need physical cash or, or American Express cash, right? Like, I got enough of that. So, like, why take, why lose, you know, 20, 30% of your Bitcoins for capital gains? Sure. I, I agree. Yeah, I, I haven't sold a dime either. Uh, yeah. Trace. Yeah, so so it's <laughs> this is going to be an exciting experiment. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Hey, real quick, do you have an estimate for how much Bitcoin is out there? What what are the talks for how much Bitcoin is is tied up in hard drives and dumps? Yeah, so we've got like 16.35 million Bitcoins that have been produced so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, estimate would be maybe 3 or 4 million of that is not saleable. Wow. Uh, so 20, 25%, right? Uh, yeah, because, I mean, people people have either lost it. Like, one guy threw out his hard drive that had 10,000 Bitcoins on it. Like, whoops, there went $20 million. Uh, in the early days, you know, people lost their private keys or this, that, or the other. So there's a lot of just lost, unsaleable Bitcoin. Another thing is, as the transaction fees increase, the way the transaction fees are calculated, it, it's the size of the transaction. So you have some... UTXOs, those are the transaction outputs. If those are a small enough amount in terms of amount of Bitcoin, but it requires a certain amount of bytes in order to create the transaction, there's actually like, there's actually a formula where you can find out where it costs more to use certain UTXOs in a transaction than what they're worth because of the exchange rate and the transaction fees, right? Mm-hmm. So as transaction fees increase, it actually makes some UTXOs uh, worthless, right? Yeah. No, so, that makes so, sense. So that's constantly like so that that alone, transaction fees increasing, that alone is is deflationary because it's it's destroying the economic value of some of these UTXOs. So, you know, we've got that and we can we can figure that out just by, by looking at the blockchain exactly how many or or, you know, bitcoins are just not valuable to actually move in a transaction. And then you've got new users who, you know, buy bitcoins and then they like like I had one I had one friend. He he bought some bitcoins on his iPhone, uh, you know, and why well, he had paid for breakfast. So I sent him some bitcoins to pay for it. And then he got a new iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, can I get my bitcoins back? I was like, did you, did you write down the phrase? He's like, no. I'm like, well, sorry. <laughs> oh man. Um, I mean, it'd be funny if it weren't so sad because I think that like breakfast, the you know those bitcoins are probably like five or six thousand dollars now because uh, it's been a couple years. So you know you've got you've got user error like that. Um, yeah, I mean, you've got you've got bitcoins that might be getting blacklisted, uh, where it's just not safe to use them because they've they've passed through the hands of you know some nefarious actor, and so I don't want to touch those, you know. So, uh, I mean, we don't know exactly how many, but I'd say so. We've got 16.35 million total bitcoins. I'd say three to four million, say four million, are not saleable. Uh, so that brings us down to 12 you know, 12 million Bitcoin. 
I would say out of that 12 million Bitcoin, you've got maybe 6 million Bitcoin, half of them, that are either deep cold storage or otherwise tied up, meaning that like those are not going to be saleable. Uh, so deep cold storage, those are people just who are hodling their Bitcoins for, for, you know, for a long time. Or you've got like the, there was a survey done in, in the UK. 33% of businesses there are now stockpiling Bitcoin as kind of a form of insurance against ransomware. Wow. And this is all, all companies, you know, they, they had it broken down between one to 500 employees, 500 to 1500 employees and 1500 and above. And you know, one out of three companies all has Bitcoin that they're stockpiling. So that's, so you've got, you've got companies like that that are stockpiling it because, you know, Bitcoin's becoming a form of legal tender for the hackers. You know, that's mm -hmm. one of the complaints like, oh, the dollar's backed by guns. And it's like, well, I guess Bitcoin's got its own form of, uh, like government with these hackers, like extorting people by encrypting their databases. Um, so you've got that, but then you've also got companies that ha that just have to hold Bitcoin as working capital. Mm. You know, whether they're exchanges or payment processors or or whatever, like they have to hold Bitcoin just as part of working capital. And so, you know, that's I'd say that takes at least another that takes probably six six and a half million Bitcoins uh, out of the saleable amount. So now we've gone from sixteen and you know sixteen point three five million to let's say uh, 6 million Bitcoins out of that 6 million. Uh, so we've got, we've got 4 million Bitcoins left, right? Am I doing well, math right? Well, Six the only thing I would say is, is as the price rises, they don't have to hold as many coins because if, you know, if it's a dollar, uh, benchmark they're using and they need to hold a yeah. hundred thousand when the price doubles, that's half the Bitcoin they need to hold. Yeah, but it's a little counterintuitive because their user base might actually be growing faster than the price is rising. And because you have the fiat currency system, you've got this time delay between wire transfers and everything. So, like, actually, you have to have more Bitcoin as the as as your user base is growing and the price doesn't necessarily keep up with it. Uh, a prime example of this are the ATMs, right? Like, because... I mean, I, I tried, you know, I was involved in the first Bitcoin ATM project back in 2011. Uh, it never really got off the ground. Uh, but so I, and I've had several ATM uh, business, you know, investment offers come across my desk and all of them are huge consumers of cash on their, in terms of the cash flow statement. And the, the more they grow, the more cash they actually consume. So I, personally, I don't really like that business model. Um, even though they're highly profitable, but they actually need more bitcoins as as their user base grows and as the price goes up. Nominal amounts of bitcoin, even though the value of that working capital is increasing. So, you know, when in terms of the actual saleable amount of bitcoin, you're looking at maybe like six million of that, and then the amount that's actually trading and saleable on exchanges and everything, you're looking at maybe a million Bitcoin out there because the other five millions like in people's wallets and they're, you know, they'll, they'll send it to an exchange and trade it, but they're not actively doing that or anything. They're just kind of sitting on it, but it's not deep cold storage or non-saleable. So, you know, the actual float of Bitcoin is maybe only a, a million Bitcoin. Wow. Out of six, out of 16 million. 
and and that's the amount that's actually moving around on the exchanges and everything. And people are constantly like drawing down on that stock and either moving it into the unsaleable Bitcoin category because they're they're losing it from UTXOs or they're putting it into cold storage or they're using it as working capital. Uh, I mean, there's just not a lot of Bitcoin out there that's actually able to circulate for all the use cases. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a great question. The it, it's kind of, it kind of goes to the stock to flow analysis that you do with gold, right? Sure. Um, and and it's I mean, it's just yeah. And what's so fascinating about it is. You know, when you look at that non-saleable Bitcoin, that speculative Bitcoin, the hodling Bitcoin, that's the dog on LSD, right? That like it's it it doesn't know where it's going. That's the that's why the market price is kind of crazy. Transactional demand, you know, th- this one million Bitcoin that's actually saleable and moving around on exchanges, that's transactional demand Bitcoin, and the price people are willing to pay for that is irrelevant, really, because it doesn't matter whether Bitcoin's five dollars or ten thousand uh, dollars; it serves their use case. So the e- price elasticity of demand for this transactional demand components irrelevant. So you've got the you know you've got this speculative demand, but the prices are being set at the margin with this transactional demand on the actual exchanges and everything. And I think that's one of the reasons that leads to these massive booms and massive busts in in the in the Bitcoin like price psychology hmm. is is just because supply is totally limited in amount and known. Uh, we've got this transactional demand where it's setting the prices on the margin, but it's the price elasticity doesn't matter. And then you've got the dog on LSD. So we're seeing a free market develop like a truly free market. And we haven't had a truly free market probably in the history of humanity because we've, We've just had the state like so involved in everybody's lives. Trace, I there's I want to get to Ethereum real quick, but you mentioned something about Bitcoin being truly free market, and and I see the comments out there. People say things like Bitcoin is mostly free from manipulation. What are they talking about with? potentially being manipulated or, or what is the speculation out there that people say Bitcoin is manipulated? Um, cognitive dissonance. Uh, I mean, like, yeah. Well, I mean, what are they saying? Like, because, because when you, when you actually look at the philosophical, look at the argument, like philosophically, and then through the lens of Austrian economics, I mean, I just laid it out. We've only got three different parts of this equation and, mm-hmm. You know, supply is fixed and known and advanced. I explain the speculative demand component, and I explain the transactional demand component. Like, yeah. if you're trying to say, oh, we've got high-frequency traders this, or we've got uh, big whale holders that, or blah, 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 like, uh, I'm just not buying it. Like, like who's like who's manipulating this? Right. What are they going to do? Manipulate the price down or manipulate the price up? Like this is just price discovery. It's the dog on LSD. Yeah. And everybody wants everybody wants to chase the rabbit. And so if somebody tries to manipulate the price down, guess what? Like the market's going to break that price. Like that attempted a price control. They've done it. And and one of the primary ways that that the price is manipulated down is by selling people you know, 
selling the same Bitcoin two or three or four times. Mm-hmm. And how do you do that? Well, you have you don't have as many Bitcoins as you have uh, like customers who have Bitcoins on your exchange or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So like, but that's the thing about Bitcoin. You can uh, you can immediately withdraw your Bitcoins to the blockchain, and you can instantly verify the quantity and the quality of them. Unlike gold, you know, you got to melt that bar down and and recast it. When we're talking about these transaction fees, like, and and people don't really, I think they they might take this for granted with Bitcoin, but every single transaction in Bitcoin, it's like melting the gold bar down, verifying it, and then recasting it into a new gold bar. Mm. And there and there and right now the the transaction volume it's the equivalent of like 50 or 60 tons of gold per day being melted and recast. Wow. You know in terms of bitcoin settlement currency functionality right now. Like and that's really cool when you think about it. That is because, really cool. Because you know hey you can only manipulate the market so long before you have to deliver bitcoins on the blockchain to somebody who's got them stored in their own armory wallet running their own full node <laughs> right yeah it's like it's like hey like show me the show me the blockchain or it didn't happen <laughs> trace let's get to ethereum here i, I want to keep this interview for uh, under an hour uh, I'm loving it, by the way. This is uh, digesting this amazing information here. But let's talk about Ethereum. I'm getting tons of emails, tons of texts regarding Ethereum. It traded for the longest time between seven and ten bucks. And here we are with it right under $200. Some are saying it could rise to Bitcoin's price and even outpace it with its first stop at $1,000 a coin. What are your thoughts on Ethereum, and, and is it something you see as a, a contender with Bitcoin and something that could potentially outperform it? Well, it's definitely a contender. I mean, it's number two market cap, uh, right, on coinmarketcap.com. Uh, personally, Ethereum's generating a ton of transaction of exchange fees at Kraken, which I'm an investor in. We're the largest uh, Kraken exchange, by the way, largest Bitcoin exchange that does fiat uh, fiat support you know then there's poloniacs uh like man i i i i have some reservations about ethereum uh one is like look at the size of the blockchain and the rate of growth of their blockchain is that really scalable two like look at how they handled the dow like is is the is the ethereum blockchain really immutable uh is it is it really censorship resistant and decentralized or is it just proof of italic uh third uh okay so you've got solidity but what about rootstock like you know going to be able to port solidity directly over onto bitcoin via rootstock and then you get all the security of the bitcoin blockchain uh third uh you know, I don't know that Ethereum's really designed to be this settlement currency uh, store of value type of primordial use case like Bitcoin is. Uh, you've got you you have to like take these ethers and then you refine them into gas and then the gas powers the contracts. Um, so I mean, those are those are some of my reservations on it. Uh, it's run from like sixty cents to one hundred eighty dollars. Uh, so, hey, like, and don't get me wrong, I've never shorted Ethereum. 
Uh, I've only been, you know, I've only been able to play it in a way that's uh, long on Ethereum. So, you know, I'm not like an Ethereum hater or anything. In fact, I love all the innovation that's going on across this space. I would just, you know, like look at look at what transaction fees are for Ethereum. How big is their user base actually? Uh, I personally, I'm not seeing the website traffic uh, from Ethereum related keywords and stuff that's anywhere close to the size of the Bitcoin community. I mean, Ethereum is is a, a tiny fraction. I mean, we're talking like three to five percent. Uh, you know, similar amount of web web traffic, Google searches and whatnot, if that. And so, you know, Ethereum, I think, does have a lot of corporate backing. You know, you, you had like Microsoft decide to invest in things. So, you know, if you're if you've got some some big money behind there, that's going to prop up the price as a way to kind of fund a tech incubator to just have people tinker around and see what they can build. Uh, you know, I think that might be a little bit of what's going on uh, around Ethereum, uh, but it's it's great. It's making us a ton of exchange fees, so like I'm all for it. Like keep the money coming, like Microsoft and banks and stuff. But I just don't know how long or how sustainable that is. Sure. Um, and 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 I would look at transaction fees in terms of dollars that are paid every day, and and then you know, and that's not and that's not even looking at like the the technical the the like the technical sustainability of it i i think that the rate of the rate of speed at which their blockchain is growing uh that that kind of that kind of concerns me uh so you know at least bitcoin one megabyte block size hey like that's much easier to kind of get your arms wrapped around in terms of uh attack surface and attack vectors the other thing is you know, Bitcoin scripting language is pretty, like, it's very locked down, whereas Ethereum's is much more open. Uh, well, you know, you introduce, when, when it's much more open, it just greatly increases the attack surface and attack vectors. And so you, you can, you know, you can have stuff happen that you don't necessarily like, like the DAO, right? Because mm-hmm. the code just gets more complicated. So, you know, there's... Bitcoin has been battle tested uh, and passed with flying colors over the last eight years. Ethereum's actually had significant security issues. You know, look at the DAO. Uh, so, oh, I mean, <laughs> is it is it a fun speculative instrument to trade? Yeah. Uh, would you keep you know your your life savings in there? I don't know. <laughs> I don't even know. If, Bitcoin plays that role for most people. It depends how comfortable you are with the tech, and you should always understand what you're buying. Uh, but that, you know, that's just kind of my general take on everything. Very similar with Ripple. You know, Ripple has locked up the vast majority of their XRP. Uh, so, you know, they're they're kind of playing games with market cap and stock to flow and all this stuff. Um, and and then you've got different use use cases. You know, there there might be a very good use case for a blockchain that is corporately controlled, that is censorable, you know, that there might be a use case for that, and the market might very well value that. And so likewise, a decentralized censorship-resistant one, you know, there will be a use case for that. So, like, you know, I don't, I don't think that Bitcoin or Ethereum or Ripple or Dash or Litecoin, I don't think you have to have 
a one tool fits all solution. I think that, you know, we can, we can have lots of different tools and lots of different innovation taking place, uh, and, and use these different tools to solve different problems. I mean, right now we've got the dollar is the only way that we're able to communicate value. You, you know, before this, these cryptocurrencies came about, it's like saying that you know, and having this nationalized way to, tr- to, to transfer value, there's just no innovation. It's like saying the only way we can transfer information on the Internet is with Twitter. Mm. You know, no YouTube videos, no blog posts. Uh, you know, we, we're only going to use 140-character Twitter, you know, and, and, that, and anything else is going to get regulated out of existence. You know, now we're on the other side of the of the chasm where people can build whatever tool is going to be most useful for whatever use case. And so, hey, I think I think we're going to see an explosion of new species of, you know, monetary animals coming on the scene. Trace, and this is my last question for you. I was from uh, the users. A lot of people are, are seeing Steam grow. What are your thoughts on the platform and what are your thoughts on Steam? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, I, I've had a lot of fun over at Steam. Uh, I've posted, like, articles and made money. Uh, I, I tend to transfer my Steam, uh, into Dash or Bitcoin or whatever, like, as fast as possible. Uh, cause I don't really see Steam as, like, a good store of value. Um, but I've been proven wrong because it's gone from, like, 15 cents to a dollar, uh, like, what is it, a dollar 20 right now. Uh, in the last couple months, uh, but it had, it had run up to like five dollars and then crashed to like eight cents or something, and now it's like back up to a dollar twenty-five. So that could be kind of fun. I think that Steam has a like, I think they're the problem they're trying to solve is a very legit problem. We have no real way to to you know figure out what Reddit posts we should read or what Reddit comments or whose blogs or whose YouTube videos, and there's an absolute gluttony available of content to consume and how do we know what content we want to consume i like steam because it builds in these monetary advantage like monetary metrics into that so i think that they're definitely like attacking a problem that that is serious and that people like really want solved i just don't know that the way that they're going about solving it is like the 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 way right i don't know that whether that's the answer or not but Hey, if you're the only one who's like working on solving the problem, you might just win by by nobody else showing up. And so, you know, I kind of I kind of like I kind of like Steam. I think it's fun. So, you know, I'm not I'm not going to go poop on some of these projects because of, you know, some type of ego. I think it's kind of fun. And hey, I've like been able to extract some value out of Steam. So <laughs> and no, no hater here. Good deal. All right, Trace. Hey, man, I've enjoyed this call, and you've uh, gave me a lot of things to go back and uh, and and do some research on uh, rabbit holes that I want to explore here. Uh, thanks for coming on the line, and of course, if people want to learn more about what you're doing, please share some final words of advice and uh, where where they can find you. Yeah, so thanks so much for having me. Remember, your mind's like a parachute. It's got to be open to work. Like, try to get your ego out of the, the problem. Don't ha- don't suffer from cognitive dissonance because it is going to be uh, fatal in, in this wealth transfer that's happening. Uh, a lot of my work, uh, I got the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, www.bitcoin.kn. 
And other than that, just thanks so much for letting me come on. I, you know, I love your audience, love, uh, love all the people. Hope I, hope, hope what I shared is, is helpful and useful to them in making their own decisions. Mm. Powerful words there. Thanks so much, Trace. Thank you. copy of the free Bitcoin guide at freebitcoinguide.com. Got a question or suggestion? Record your voice at bitcoin.kn. Don't be shy. To help the show, share bitcoin.kn with friends, post about it on Reddit, and otherwise spam the interwebs. Your iTunes comments and five-star reviews are very important to us. Please continue tuning in to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, where we release interviews with the top people in the Bitcoin world. Now take some choline and let that Bitcoin knowledge consolidate.